Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This episode is a cross-post of an interview I did recently with Julia Galef on her show, Rationally Speaking. You might remember her from episode 7, uh, Julia Galef, on making humanity more rational, what effective altruism does wrong, and why Twitter isn't all bad. This interview is a fleeting 50 minutes, but we found time to talk about uh, a number of things, including the most common misunderstandings of 80,000 hours as advice, uh, how much I've changed my mind about things over the years, 80,000 hours as biggest mistakes, and uh, whether faster economic growth is desirable. If you're a regular listener to the show, you might find a lot of what I'm saying on it uh, pretty familiar by this point as I was kind of speaking, assuming a, a lower level of background knowledge than, than I do when I'm uh, talking on here. But if you've uh, listened to less than, say, uh, half of the 52 episodes that we've uh, released so far, then I think there's still quite a bit that might be new and interesting to you. All right, here's Julia. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and I'm here with today's guest, Rob Wiblin. A lot of things Rob and I have to talk about, um, but the the, the thing that really piqued my interest to focus on today is um, a few years ago, I think back in 2014, I had uh, Ben Todd, who's the president of 80,000 Hours and one of the founders on the show, and we talked about some of the logic behind 80,000 Hours and effective altruism and uh, like some of the basics around how to pick a career to maximize your positive impact. And, you know, it's been over four years since then, and some of the thinking of 80,000 hours and the sort of surrounding effective altruist movement has evolved. Uh, some views have shifted. Other views have maybe clarified. There have been some like misunderstandings or misconceptions about what 80,000 hours and EA in general actually believes. And so I thought it would be really great to sort of sit down with Rob and have a review of the evolution of 80,000 hours and his thinking on how to affect the world positively. So, Rob, that's what we're going to do today. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. I've listened to, to the show for, for many years, and it's, uh, I guess it's oh, good, good, to be, good to be speaking rather than, than listening for once. <laughs> I want to say, uh, Rob, Wiblin, and Julia Gill together, what is this, a crossover episode? <laughs> but only fans the greatest of, crossover of all time. BoJack Horseman will get that, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure Rob has more productive things to do with his time than watch TV. So um, that's for the BoJack fans out there. Um, so, Rob, uh, can you just give me the basics about 80,000 hours? Um, what do you guys do? How big are you? How how long have you been around? So 80,000 hours is all about helping people uh, have a larger social impact with their career. So we do research to try to figure out how people can can do more good through their work. And um, we publish that on our website and we have our podcast. And also we uh, provide one-on-one uh, advising to, to people who bring us their particular situation and we give them give them ideas for how they can potentially help people in a, in a bigger way uh, with with their work. And, and roughly how many people have you advised at this point? Uh, how many people have we advised? I, I mean, like guess. order of magnitude. Oh, well, we've had uh, about four or five million people on the site uh, over the last seven years. Nice. I guess we have about, yeah, one and a half million visitors a year now. I think in terms of coaching, I think it would be around 1,000 that we've coached uh, so far. Um, we we, weren't, we didn't do a lot of coaching for a couple of years. We were mostly just uh, doing research, but now we're like grow, growing, the, growing the in-person team who's uh, providing advice to, to a whole lot more people. So hopefully that number will go up, go nice. up quite a lot over time. And uh, for listeners out there who haven't already heard an explanation of your name, what does the 80,000 hours name refer to? Right. So 80,000 hours is roughly the number of hours that someone would work in a, in a full-time career. I think it's uh, was it 40, 40 uh, hours a week for 50 weeks a year for, for 40 years. Um, so we chose that because it like, gives you an indication of uh, just how important your, your career decisions can be, that this is a lot of time that you're potentially going to spend, so you should think about how you can spend it well. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, you could think, well, 80,000 hours is 
actually not that much time relative to the scale of the problems in the world. So you're not going to be able to solve all of them with that amount of time. Uh, and you, so you're going to have to prioritize, prioritize pretty hard. Those are, the, those are the two angles on it. I think the first time I heard uh, the explanation of your name, I made what I thought was a very clever joke about how if you research, devote your career to researching life extension, then you could increase the uh, number of hours and you guys would have to change your name to, you know, 50 million hours or something like that. And and you, you were very nice about it, but it was pretty clear you'd heard that same joke like a million times. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've, there's, there's, there's a lot of jokes of, of that kind that, that I've heard many times. That I'm, it's unfortunate that my uh, my laughter wasn't able to be sufficiently sincere. I, I <laughs> you should, were clearly trying, that. though. Like, I appreciated that. Um, so I, I alluded to kind of an evolution in the thinking or at least like like the, the structure of the public version of 80,000 hours arguments. What would you say are, you know, two or three of the main things that are different about it, the advice 80,000 hours gives now than it did like five years ago? So I think a lot of people when they hear about 80,000 hours or effective altruism uh, or when I bring it up with them, they think that that is basically means – going out and making a lot of money, earning to give, and then uh, donating it to charities that have been proven to have a really large impact. That is sort of the media portrayal of 80,000 Hours. Like most uh, of the articles about you guys have focused on that. That's right. And I think that, that's, that's really unfortunate. It's, uh, it's kind of quite, quite frustrating because that's actually um, not what I think most people in the effective altruism community are doing or at least not what, what they're, not what they're aiming, aiming to do in the long term. And it's not what our advice is. Uh, so, yeah, it's that, that basically that, that perception came, uh, came about because that's one of the relatively easier um, options that people could take to explain. And so when, when we were yeah, early on in the day, uh, in, in the life of 80,000 Hours and, and effective altruism, if you wanted to you know, offer something that would be interesting to people that they hadn't really thought of that would like, indicate to them uh, how they might be able to do more good or at and least like be able to like, demonstrate. Way. It's a little bit yeah. counterintuitive, yeah. Most people hadn't heard of this earning to give back in 2011 when, when we were launching. So right. it's kind of an interesting piece of media bait that, that, that a lot of journalists picked up. And still pick up on, on to this day. There was also uh, GiveWell, uh, is this uh, charity evaluator, I think a sponsor of the show, oh, in yeah, fact, uh, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done research to try to find charities that have like very strong evidence behind them and where they have some idea of the actual impact that you get, the, the bang you get per dollar. Uh, that was like relatively well advanced uh, at that time, uh, and that's an interesting approach that you could try to try to take to have more impact. Would be to do things that have are demonstrated to have a really really large impact. Yeah. But but kind of all of these all of these things, uh, I would say, just minority uh, views within this like broader community or this broader uh, kind of intellectual movement. So but when you say they're minority views, do you mean that like there are some people who think that most people should do earning to give, but the people who think that are are just not very common or. Uh, Okay, so yeah, so basically if, if you break it down, there's a substantial number of people who are involved in effective altruism who think that we should focus on global development and, and health. Uh, I think it's something around 40 or 50%, although mm-hmm. perhaps if you went to people who are working full-time, it goes down to more like uh, 10 or 20%. Then uh, earning to give, uh, there's quite a lot of people who doing earning to give. Uh, I would say it's maybe, again, about, about half of the community is trying to do good that way, hmm. although a substantial fraction of those people, I think, are uh, doing that with the intention of eventually going and, and doing something else once they've developed their skills and, and found a really good fit for them. So, uh, so both of those things are like substantial, substantial parts of uh, effective altruism as mm-hmm. a whole, but they're, but they're by no means dominant and by no means like the, 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 the thing that it uh, comprises. And in terms of uh, doing evidence-backed interventions, uh, like using that as a strategy to have more impact, I think again, that maybe maybe a third of the community thinks that that's like a, you know one of the key ways that they're going to try to do more good is to you know use really strong social science evidence to uh, to find things that that really work. Um, and I'd say maybe like another third are kind of like you know that, that's an interesting approach that that I like use among other different methods. And I think uh, probably the third that I'm in is like being actually somewhat skeptical of that because I think that. Uh, interventions or problems where there's uh, very strong evidence uh, for what you can do actually might be like negatively correlated with uh, things where you can have a very large impact because those are mm. 
likely to be fields that are very well developed. What's um, an example of a... Well, I'd say global health is probably uh, one of them where uh, there is uh, a lot more evidence in that area than there are in um, most of the problems that uh, we're more focused on now. Mm -hmm. And that's because so much effort, so much like intellectual firepower has gone into those areas Mm -hmm. that, um, of course, it's good, uh, all else equal, that uh, you have more evidence about what works and what doesn't. Uh, But it's a sign that the area is not so neglected. Uh, It's it's not kind of a a problem that you can go out and pioneer. There's like already millions of people, people working on it. Yeah. I think about that sometimes in terms of the risk-reward trade-off, right. like when you're deciding where to invest, for example. It's not quite the same thing, but there's kind of a parallel structure there. You know? Right. So you think, yeah, so giving to you know, uh, bed nets, might, you might view that as kind of investing in Costco or Walmart or some like a very reliable company that's going to return dividends so pretty, pretty reliably. Where I bed guess, nets is like uh, anti-malarial bed nets, which there's like a lot of evidence around the, uh, the you know, number of life years you can save by purchasing X number of bed nets. Yeah. But I think if you're actually trying to uh, maximize maximize your impact, it probably makes more sense to be more of a venture capitalist, to go mm-hmm. out and uh, look for things that have like, that, are, that are riskier, maybe harder to find, um, have, a, have a high chance of failing. Right. But where you can go and do something that other people haven't done uh, and where you would have like, uh, yeah, just a, a larger like a bang, bang out, of, out of your career and expectation, even though there's like a high probability that it, that, it, that it won't work out. So that sounds like you're sort of talking about two different changes or misunderstandings at once, where one of them is do you do earning to give where you're like working in finance or whatever and donating your money to a charity versus do you do direct work where you yourself are doing research or working at a charity or, you know, directly working on a problem? And then the other question is, do you work on or give to something where there's like very rigorous evidence, but it's maybe already pretty well developed like global health versus do you work on or give to a cause that's like riskier, but potentially more impactful for humanity or the future. Yeah, so you can right? do any combination of, like, I guess there's yeah. four combinations you get out of those and you, you can combine them how, however you like. Yeah. I guess uh, we're now more focused on things other than earning to give uh, most right. of the time and uh, more, more speculative, uh, higher impact, like in, yeah, research innovation policy, that, that, that kind of uh, career approach, rather than yeah, earning to give for things that are, uh, uh, I guess, <laughs> boring would be the negative way of putting it, or like a reliable, I guess, if you, yeah, pretty, predictable. <laughs> sensible. If you wanted to, exactly, yeah. sensible, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so earning to give being you know less emphasized or less important than maybe the popular conception, that's one thing. Are there other things that uh, that are different about 80,000 hours advice now than, uh, than people think? Yeah, so I guess uh, the corollary of focusing less on earning to give is trying to find leverage elsewhere by doing kind of scientific research or uh, doing, doing policy work where you hope to move a lot of uh, uh, money or, say, uh, or like legislative power uh, through, through government. Uh, I think another common misunderstanding that people had about 80,000 hours advice uh, was that uh, they, they thought that we were recommending that people kind of go into typical prestigious corporate jobs um, mm. early on in early on in their career. And I, to do earning to give or for some other reason? So uh, I mean, one, one reason would be to, to do earning to give. Uh, another would be just that you wanted to build up a lot of career capital. Uh, so mm. you wanted to say – so one thing – one part that we did suggest uh, early on uh, was going into consulting, say, for the first few years out of university with the hope that you would build up, you know, a network, lots of skills, um, yeah, lots, lots of connections, potentially some like money in the bank that you could use to take to take risks in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some people took that path and worked out for some. I did, didn't work out for others. And I think it is it, it is a reasonable path. Um, but these days, because I guess we've become more confident about the the well the, the priority paths that we really ultimately want to see. Um, people get into as, as their careers mature. Um, it doesn't seem like going into typical corporate jobs is really uh, anywhere close to the best way to, to getting into those positions. Um, basically, it seems like the career capital that people were getting, the kind of skills that they were building up in consulting or other corporate jobs, uh, just don't transfer over so well into the kind of uh, natural sciences or into, into policy careers 
or international relations, uh, things like that. Oh, uh, so, so the career capital transferability isn't so good. We've become more uh, confident in recommending uh, somewhat uh, unusual paths or mm. somewhat uh, working on, on problems that most people uh, weren't focused on before, just because we've uh, had more time to think about it, had more time to hear people's potential objections and decide that we weren't convinced by those objections. What, um, I'm sure we'll get more into this later <laughs> in the conversation, but what's one example of an unusual career path or field that you would now recommend people go into? Right. So the stuff that we talk uh, the most about uh, these days is trying to improve the long-term future of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, in principle by preventing global catastrophic risks. So trying to prevent, for example, a war between China and the United States in the 21st century, trying to prevent nuclear weapons from ever being used, trying to prevent uh, new technologies from you know, uh, really taking civilization off track uh, by being either, either misused or um, used in kind of an, an accidental way that, uh, that causes a really large uh, global, global catastrophe. Um, and that's not what most people think of when they think of about like charitable work or trying, right. trying to improve the world of their career. Um, and I mean, we, we were aware of those ideas uh, in 2011, but we're initially kind of cautious because it, uh, at least to most people, seems to violate common sense that that would be the, the way to have the largest impact. But you know, as we've gone on, we've like thought about it a lot. We've kind of sharpened those arguments, seen like exactly uh, what does the argument rest on what kind of objections do people put forward and mm-hmm. uh, decided that, no, actually, we really think that this, that this um, is likely a, a very compelling way, compelling way to do good. And if, and if you, that's ultimately what you want to end up doing then. Uh, kind of corporate jobs is just not, ne- not really the sensible first best path uh, out, mm. of, out of university. You'd want to just yeah, go and go try to do something that would get you into one of, these, one of the relevant roles directly. So do you think that the change was more about you guys becoming more confident that these sort of weird like catastrophic risk reduction career paths were the way to go? Or is it about becoming more confident that you could make that case publicly in a way that like wouldn't put people off? Hmm. I mean, I think it's a, a bit of both. I, uh, I think I was personally already quite confident <laughs> early on. Perhaps <laughs> that's, that's my temperament. Uh, so maybe my like personal views haven't shifted so much, but I think a lot of other people who are more temperamentally cautious, who like heard these arguments and thought, ah, yeah, that, that, that kind of sounds compelling on paper, but I'm just going to kind of stick to uh, like what what seems like more common sense to me. Um, I think many of those people have like shifted over over a period of years, mm-hmm. uh, where they uh, just yeah just explored it more and, and became more convinced. So I guess as a group, it's become uh, more possible to to take action in that direction because it's just uh, more of a consensus among people who work in this area full time. You know, as soon as I asked that question, it occurred to me that I think for a lot of people, to some extent, there's there's not that much space between what do I what am I confident in and what could I make the case for to other people in a way that would make sense to them. Hmm. Um, and so maybe those two questions were kind of <laughs> all bound up together for a lot of people. Well, I think I, yeah, I would have been uh, willing willing to push on it uh, yeah, a bit harder, that. faster. <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess yeah, that. you know what kind of person I am. I, I tend to uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean straight shooter, straight shooter. I guess I guess perhaps also a bit more risk taking, uh, yeah. a bit more of a venture capitalist when it when it comes to ideas. So like, yeah. uh, maybe jump onto things. I mean, it, I think it takes all kinds in this respect. You don't want everyone. If, if everyone was like me, then the world would just like fly back and forth between <laughs> it ideas. Would be an interesting it'd be, world. It'd be too faddish. <laughs> it would be an interesting world. Maybe maybe a, maybe a riskier world, which is which is not so great. But I think you do need some people who are willing to uh, try try to stake out new ideas and say, no, actually, I do believe this. I'm gonna going to push it forward and then see if they can convince everyone else who's a bit more uh, a bit more cautious. Um, I wanted to ask about one uh, apparent change that I read about on the 80,000 Hours Mistakes page, which is really great. I'd recommend people check it out. It's just, I think it's just called Our Mistakes. It's a sort of one of the main pages on the 80,000 Hours website. We can link to it. And so they, they list mistakes that they think they've made in you know, logistics or management, but also, you know, mistakes in sort of having gotten the wrong answer on some question or, or you know, given the wrong sort of public position on something. And one thing they say is, we always thought personal fit, i.e. how likely you are to excel in a job, was important. But over the last few years, we've come to appreciate that it's more important than we originally thought. 
uh, most significantly due to conversations with Holden Karnofsky, who is a founder of GiveWell and now runs the Open Philanthropy Project. Um, so why do you now think that personal fit, you being 80,000 hours, um, why do you now think personal fit is more important than you had previously thought? Yeah. I think we always thought that personal fit was quite important, but uh, we perhaps thought that it would be possible for someone who wasn't passionate about an area, wasn't passionate about a particular method to just kind of um, stick with it, just like, just like gut it out and say, no, I'm going to like do this even though I'm, I'm really not enjoying it. Uh, and I guess over time we've become more pessimistic about people's ability to, to stick with that. Mm-hmm. So for most people it seems like they have um, most of their impact kind of later in their career once they've built up a lot of skills, they've built up you know, a, real connection, a lot of connections where they, where they can influence what's going on. Um, and so having someone who like, uh, you know, grits through it for a couple of years, uh, but then like gives up because they just don't, they, they don't have uh, you know, enough energy to, to continue with it, uh, is probably losing most of the value uh, from that person's career. Because so, so they, they work on it for a few years, they like just stick with it, even though they're not enjoying it. And then they leave and then kind of all of the skills that they've built up, or all the connections that they build up, um, all of the organizational capital they created is then kind of like dissipates. Um, and so if, if you're playing, playing a long-term game, then it seems like personal fit becomes more important. Now, uh, one, one thing that I would say is that uh, we still think that you should try to find uh, a priority area um, and then try to find uh, kind of a key bottleneck to solving uh, that, that problem. And then within that, kind of uh, look for something, uh, look for a role that has a good personal fit for you. And typically, there are like so many roles at that point that um, most people can find something that's that's potentially suitable to them. Uh, and I guess, it, and I guess, if you can't uh, find anything like that, uh, then earning to give is is always uh, still a potentially like a quite quite good option, even if it's not the one that we that we suggest that people look at first. I'm curious, does 80,000 hours take any kind of official position, or I, I mean, I'm interested in your personal thoughts as well on how to balance like. I'm like imagining someone who can actually stick it out in a career that's like not exactly not the ideal career for their own happiness or, you know, intellectual interest or whatever, but where they can have a a large impact. Um, And like imagining if someone could do that, like should they, you know, is that like the right choice for them to make morally? Um, Do you or 80,000 Hours have a position on like whether someone should take a career like that if they if it's not a personal fit in, in the happiness sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a range of views on the team. I don't think we, we don't really have like a, a position on that per se. I guess personally, just to be honest, I think morally that morally that would be good. If someone really could just go and, you know, save thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives uh, through their career, um, even if they didn't enjoy it, as long as they actually could do it and stick with it, even if it wasn't super fulfilling to them, then I, think, then I agree in some like moral, like hypothetical principled sense, then, uh, then they should do that. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like shirk that, shirk that conclusion. Um, but I guess in, in practice, uh, I don't really like push that agenda very hard because I think in, in most cases, um, the roles that actual people in the real world are going to find where they're having a large impact, they're going to find very stimulating, uh, and it's going to be very rare that someone's like best role is something that they find unpleasant or unfulfilling. <clears throat> um, I mentioned the our mistakes page on the eighty thousand hours website. Um, I'm I'm just curious if you guys have noticed any like impacts from having that page like do people do do people get angry about you know things that you confess you've screwed up that otherwise they wouldn't have known about do they like do they tend to view you more positively what what have you noticed uh i think probably almost nobody reads it Uh, (laughs) or or maybe they like or maybe they see that there's a mistakes page they like go the top like oh these people are credible so that's great and then they then they they, they move on (laughs) no i haven't i haven't heard that many reactions to it other than people saying oh it's great that you that you acknowledge your mistakes Um, okay like and and more upfront about that that's that that's a good sign um yeah, certainly, certainly, no one's given us a hard time about about any of the mistakes there. I think, by and large, people are pretty forgiving. If you're like, well, we, we messed up. Uh, here's how we messed up. Here we're gonna here we're gonna fix it. Um, I'm sure there are some grumpy people who will uh, who still give you a hard time at that point. But but mostly, <laughs> I think people are sympathetic. 
Um, so to the extent that 80,000 Hours has changed... Actually, no, let, let me ask you a different question first. Um, do you think that any of these changes that you've been describing are things that you've changed your mind about, or is it, like, other people in, at 80,000 Hours who have who've come to see the wisdom of your views? <laughs> well, I think I got very lucky... Um, somewhat early on when I was yeah, exploring effective altruism and trying to figure out how to do the most good uh, with my own career. Uh, so a lot of the views that I've been describing are basically the worldview of Professor Nick Bostrom, who's uh, mm-hmm. the director of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. Mm-hmm. And I found out about his work, I think, back in 2008 and 2009 um, and read like many of his key papers and was like, yeah, this, this basically seems right. And uh, I'll, I'll describe what, what these views are in just a second. Um, and being the kind of person who's like perhaps easily persuaded by like new ideas uh, or like yeah new, new papers that I read, um, I think I basically got, got lucky by taking this package. And then over the last ten years, uh, that worldview has become has mainstreamed itself, and a lot more people have gradually just become convinced that Boston's view is like is is broadly correct, even if they disagree with with some specifics, as 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 do I. So I think yeah, uh, Nick Bostrom's view of things. Uh, he's he's a, a philosopher. Uh, I think one part of it is. Uh, long-termism, so thinking that like uh, most of the moral consequences of our actions or the most important ones are probably uh, effects that will occur after our, after our natural lifespans are over, so like more than 50 or 100 years in the future. Then you think, well, how could we actually affect um, the long term? Uh, a common objection is that, well, even if the, even if uh, you know, the consequences of our actions out hundreds of years in the, in the future are really important, I can't predict what they're going to be. Uh, so instead, I'm going to focus on improving the short term. But then uh, it does seem like there actually are things that we could lean on now that do improve things for hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of years. And an obvious one would be preventing global catastrophes from which we never recover. So you can have a huge war, which, like, say, takes us back to the Stone Age, and then we never develop technology again, and eventually humanity goes extinct. Or you could have an even worse disaster that causes humanity to go extinct in the 21st century. And it's pretty obvious that that has consequences, that that affects how the world will look in, in a million years' time or 100 years' time or 1,000 years' time. Um, and there's and there's other potential ways that you could try to uh, change the long term for, uh, that that aren't uh, extinction focused. That might be, for example, you could imagine a global dictatorship that like locks us in that we can never escape from. That 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 has bad ideas. But so you uh, guys would be anti that. Anti just that, to right? right. <laughs> exactly. Completely explicit. So, so try to try to prevent that. Yeah. Um, but but that's like um, that seems to be probably the most prominent uh, thing that could happen in within our lifetimes that would have a very long uh, like very long lasting effects. Other than that, we could try to change. Other than um, like a nuclear war. Oh, or sorry, I'm, a I'm saying that. I'm, or something. Yeah, I'm saying that whole category, like global oh, catastrophic oh, risks. See, yeah, you're counting the dictatorship <laughs> as one of the catastrophic risks that yeah, could. Yeah, that, that doesn't involve extinction, but still involves right. like most of the loss of value. Right. Um, and then uh, the, the next step, I think, in the argument is wondering, well, where do where do these risks come from? Uh, it could be like from asteroids. It could be from like supervolcanoes, or it could be from like things that we make, like nuclear weapons, or you know, uh, advances in biotechnology that would be da- really dangerous, or mm-hmm. changes in information technology that could like disrupt government or disrupt society. Right. Uh, and basically, there's, there's very strong reasons uh, that are written up to think that the vast majority of the risks come from humanity itself. That it's like new things that we're going to do. Uh, that the that the probability each year of those things like screwing up civilization is much larger than the natural risks. Mm-hmm. In part, simply because we know the roughly the annual risks from supervolcanoes or asteroids and so on, because we can look at the historical record and they the, the risk just seems to be incredibly low. Uh, whereas um, we're, uh, we might be optimistic that we're not going to have a nuclear war, but do we really think it's like a one in a million chance each year? That would seem like way way too confident. Um, way too confident that it's not going to happen in any given year. Right. Yeah. 
it's funny. People usually people are used to hearing the term overconfidence or or highly confident in terms of predicting that something will happen. So it's yeah. it's like a little bit jarring <laughs> or hard to parse when people talk about overconfidence in terms of mm. thinking that you know we're not co- going to have a nuclear war. Yeah, I just think to, to say that the risk of a nuclear war in a given year is one in a million or lower uh, would just um, require you to really think that you incredibly well understand uh, the process that, that generates this, right. and that in like every respect, like every every link in the chain is uh, chain is incredibly un- is incredibly unlikely, which we just mm-hmm. don't have much reason to think. I think yeah, the annual risk is more like one in a thousand than than, mm-hmm. than one in a million, uh, which, which basically already means that like the, the risk of humanity destroying itself is larger than than all of the natural risks combined. Then, uh, so if we think that most of uh, the risks to the long-term future are humanity doing stupid things itself or like failing to coordinate itself such that we have a huge war or we misuse some new technology or discover something that would be better not to know that messes us up, um, how, can we, how can we get to a good future that's like potentially very big where people are having excellent lives that's going to require a lot of technology uh, to, to, to do itself? Basically, uh, we... Um, Bostrom and I uh, think that we need to basically order um, the things that we invent, like uh, make sure that we invent things uh, such that we're, we're doing, um, we're inventing new technologies and ideas that enhance safety sooner so that um, we're ready when we later invent more dangerous things that, that could screw us up. I guess uh, one, one easy example is that, you know, we invented nuclear weapons. I think that's the point at which... Um, uh, for the first time, we had the ability uh, within maybe a decade of uh, the first nuclear explosion to um, kill billions of people very quickly and potentially like really throw civilization off kilter mm-hmm. in, in a way that might be permanent where we we'll, where would we'll never recover. Now, uh, it took actually decades for us to invent um, permissive action links that uh, make sure that someone can't just go to a nuclear weapon and, and arm it and, and um, launch it and potentially use it. So, what, how does a permissive action link work? Okay, so uh, basically, this is like a gadget that you have in the nuclear weapon that in, that ensures that it can't be used unless you have a specific code, like a code authorization from the president or, or the Pentagon or whoever else who said yes, absolutely, we, we want to use the nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, for the first decade or two, there were like not even to begin with physical locks, uh, but like then then they added physical locks which, which you could just break if you could, if you could steal them, um, and then eventually they added these permissive action links which uh, required a code to to use the to use the weapons, but they set huh. the code to zero 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 famously, no. to, <laughs> yeah, because they were really um. worried about not being able to use them in an emergency. So it's the the Air Force or the um, strategic command uh, wanted to make basically basically the thing they were worried about much more was that they would need to use them and couldn't rather than that they would be used when when they shouldn't. Uh, Why use them at all then? That's just embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, basically my, my point uh, is that it would have been great if we'd invented permissive action links that right. we were confident would work and figured out the technology for that before we scaled up nuclear weapons or invented nuclear weapons in the first place. Right. And I think with with many new technologies that we can envisage creating in this century, uh, we can see the, we can foresee the risks to some degree. And we can foresee technologies that we can invent beforehand that would make them safer once they arrived. And I think that is uh, one of the key things that, that we can lean on is both inventing uh, like technology like permissive action links, but also so kind of social technology or ways of coordinating humanity such mm-hmm. that when we invent things like nuclear weapons or you know, whatever, whatever the next version of that is, uh, we'll be in a much better position to make sure that they're, that they're not accidentally used really badly or deliberately used really badly. So to recap, <laughs> be, and feel free to jump in and correct me, uh, the the kind of updated position of eighty thousand hours about how to maximize your pod- positive impact with your career um, is to look for opportunities to um, to like preserve or maximize the like long term 
value of of civilization, which uh, most of which or a lot of which flows through uh, finding ways to prevent human humanity from like destroying itself in the next you know couple hundred years uh, or or like dealing with a severe blow to uh, to our growth trajectory in the next couple hundred years. Right. Okay. Uh, I think. I mean, we think that's probably not not the only uh, way that people can have uh, really huge impacts, but it seems like one where it's like clear how um, the scale of the problem is very large, that the benefits would be really large if we mm-hmm. could make this change. And also just very few people are working on this. Uh, really, we're talking about like millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars going to uh, kind of this framework for improving the world. Yeah. Um, and so we think there are just a lot of like really high uh, impact opportunities for the, for the kinds of people who read 80,000 hours um, within this area. Do you direct people to anything besides like research or um, or donating to research organizations? Oh, well, uh, we're encouraging a lot of people to go and get experience in kind of the policy world, you know, mm-hmm. either in either in London or, or D.C. Um, because I guess we're not sure exactly what policies uh, or government policies would like to promote, uh, you know, if any in these areas, but it mm-hmm. seems like it's going to be important to have uh, people who have a lot of experience, uh, you know, understanding what kind of what impacts different policies w- would have uh, when, when it comes to regulating or, or deciding not to regulate new technologies. Or, or I guess, I mean, also just focusing on uh, international relations, right? So, like, one of the biggest risks is that, um, like, new dangerous weapons are used by, like, one country against another. Or right. just that there's, like, uh, a normal war between America and China, which would just be just be absolutely devastating. Uh, so going and getting experience in international relations and diplomacy also seems, uh, seems really valuable. Great. Do you try to, like, do back-of-the-envelope calculation or uh, um, quantifications about why, like, I don't know. I could imagine making a case for like improving education is going to like create a more educated populace that will then like be less likely to vote for a president who will, you know, launch a nuclear bomb or something. Like you could tell a plausible sounding story for why a bunch of other things that aren't on 80,000 hours list um, actually do serve the goal of, uh, of reducing these global catastrophic risks. So it sounds like you'd have to do some kind of rough quantification to say like, yes, you should, you know, go into these political avenues instead of these education startups or something like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've, so this is the question kind of of um, if you want to improve the long-term future, should you do very targeted things or should you do very broad things? So the, the benefit of the targeted things is that in a sense you have like a lot of oomph because you're like focusing on like specific organizations or people or policies or technologies mm-hmm. uh, where it's like uh, very very clear like what, Im- what impact they, they might have on the long-term future. For example, you know, let's say that, uh, you know, the US and China are negotiating or they're like they're at one another's throats and considering going to war and you're like in the room there and you're like trying to negotiate to make sure that they, that they don't have a war like at any cost. It's like very, yeah. very targeted intervention mm-hmm. a very focus on like specific circumstance an alternative approach to improving the long-term future would just be as, as you're suggesting to, to improve education maybe to like grow the economy to just uh, make people more reasonable in general or to improve like science across the board mm-hmm. in, the, in the hope that, that this would make things better um, and I think some of those uh, like broad interventions uh, do help um, somewhat uh, others that people are uh, uh, hopeful about. I'm like I'm like less optimistic. I think the main problem there is just, for example, you talk about improving education. Yeah, there's a lot of effort that already goes into improving education. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of other reasons other than uh, worried worrying about the long term future that people already um, dedicate their careers and their time and their money uh, to, to improving that. Um, and it just seems really hard to move the needle. Like, how much would it? Like, how much effort? How many careers would it take to improve you know, United, United States education by by ten percent, or to make people more mm-hmm. reasonable across the board uh, as voters? It seems like um, just, just extremely hard. It would take a lot of money, a lot of efforts. Not, 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 not clear that it would happen. Um, with other things like trying to prevent, uh, you know, a war between the US and China, there's definitely people working on that. It's like so. Some people in the governments. Uh, there's like some nonprofits that like that you know have some small programs about this. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it, it's nothing like the movement for improving uh, education in, in the United States or other or other countries. 
So basically, we think, as it just pans out, the, the, these broad approaches to improving the world are just already very crowded. People have strong reasons to go into them. Um, and so if, if you're looking for somewhere where like one person can really move the needle by going into it, you typically want to look at more targeted uh, approaches where it seems like there's just actually really useful stuff that, that can be done, mm-hmm. like things that could be invented right now, you know, uh, conversations that need to happen between people that uh, very few people are, are working on. It still seems like there's a tension, like even if we exclude the fields that are already extremely crowded – um, like uh, education, especially U.S. education, um, it still seems like there's a tension between um, interventions that uh, that have kind of like a clear path towards how they could help reduce global catastrophic risk or, or just like increase the long-term expected welfare of, of civilization um, versus interventions that aren't really aimed at anything in particular um, mm. but just would fit into the category of like exploration um where like if you okay so so this is this is a general argument that um some thoughtful critics of effective altruism uh, sometimes make which is that if you look back at the history of things that have improved the welfare of humanity um most of them were not intended to improve the welfare of humanity they were like you know some dude in 18th century england who was like i want to build a better textile mill not because I think it will spark the industrial revolution and raise living standards for the next, you know, 10 generations of people, but just because I think it'll make me more profitable. Um, or like the scientist who, uh, you know, studied electromagnetism or, or uh, genetics or something just because that was really interesting um, and not because he had some story about how it was going to end up helping humanity. Um, and so, like, I think it's, it's hard to argue against, uh, like, a lot of effort or at least more effort than is already exists going into uh, interventions that seem like they would reduce our risk of catastrophe that no one else is doing. Um, but I'm curious whether, like, you also see a role for a lot of people doing this kind of, like, random exploration of stuff that, like, isn't actually intended to help the world. But, like, if you look at the track record of such things, at least some of them do, and, and those things end up uh, end up pushing humanity forward. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of arguments to potentially <laughs> to, to get out here. Oh, and I'm just thinking there's like a lot of like interlocking arguments here. So and it's okay. like it's, it kind of help. Yeah, it's hard to get the whole worldview all, all, all out at once. We might run out of time. But so uh, one thing, as you said, uh, people point out that. Uh, if we look historically, it seems like most of the good was done kind of incidentally by people who were just like trying to improve their own business or explore right. something that's interesting. Uh, that, that is probably true. But I think it's a, it's a terrible argument because there was like so much more effort that went into in, in that. There were so many more people who were just trying to improve their business or, you know, studying science because they were interested in it or, it or because it was their job. And so. You're saying could, we don't have like a strong track record of people trying to help humanity and failing? Uh, I mean, I think lots of people have tried to improve humanity and, and failed, and some have succeeded also. Um, I, I just think my, my, my point is that w- it, it could be the case that people who tried to do targeted things were 100 times more impactful on average, but because they were so, 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 so much fewer, right. um, their, their share of like total good done uh, was, was, would, will still be swamped by the people who did good incidentally. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't find that argument very persuasive. would want to actually like look at people who tried to do targeted good things who were like, I'm going to like try to figure out what research topic is going to be valuable and then, and then act on that and then look at like, yeah, how well did they perform relative to, to the base rate of everyone else? What you just said does seem like an argument for why we shouldn't have no one doing the targeted inter- interventions, but mm. is it an argument for why we shouldn't have a mix of targeted interventions and kind of like random exploration of stuff? Uh, 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't quite see that. I mean, I, I agree. It, it would be a pretty strange world, I guess, if everyone was trying to do this targeted stuff. I mean, one thing is that would exhaust like almost of the most of the targeted option. Or would, it, that would that would mm. cease to be neglected because it'd just be like too much effort thrown into that style of doing good. But as it is, like because most people are trying to do good in a very broad way. Um, most people are trying to yeah, improve education, grow the economy, like right. make, the, make the world more reasonable. That, that's where like 99% of humanity's effort is going, which means that if you're like part of the 1% or the 0.1% who are looking for like really targeted opportunities, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of money on the table there to grab because it's like, because not other people are looking for it. I think this is a really important point, actually. And this is kind of a misunderstanding that's kind of in the background of a lot of conversations about effective altruism. Um, I think a lot of he- people hear the arguments that you know, 80,000 hours and other EA organizations make about the best way to help the world. And they're imagining kind of what you think everyone should do. Whereas I think a lot of your advice is given from the perspective of like on the margin, right. like for the, for the you know, next hundred people who wants to help the world, what would be the best thing for them to do? Yeah. Um, and that isn't necessarily the advice you would give if you were giving advice simultaneously to everyone on the planet. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine that we said, oh, well, like, if you want to do a lot of good, you should become a surgeon. I mean, obviously, it'd be farcical if, like, all 7 billion in the world, people in the world, try to all become surgeons. <laughs> that's, no, that's not what we're saying. We're just right. saying it would be good to have, like, yeah, on the margin, it would be good to, like, add more, some more surgeons relative to everything else or Got relative it. to what that person might have done otherwise. Uh, this might just be too, like, hard to answer off the cuff, but if you could wave a magic wand and cause some percentage of the world to follow 80,000 hours career advice, what would that percentage be? Oh, interesting. Uh, where, where the advice has to be kind of constant, like so we can't make it any more like uh, any more broader than than it is now, or like oh, or, or I add see. more so options. You can't like change it as the people, right? So, yeah, um, I mean, if we could change it as we went, I'd say hundred percent, right. but uh, or, or maybe like fifty percent for some like risk aversion thing. But I guess oh, the, the, the advice yeah. as it is now, uh, maybe like one in a hundred, one in a thousand, something like that. Oh, okay. And and would you like select a particular like let's say you could filter for some characteristics? What would What's like the group of people that you would want to follow eighty thousand hours advice? Um, I guess it's like people who are analytical, kind of cautious, uh, curious, are trying to be very informed, uh, like care about not not just uh, you know go- going ahead with it with their own intuitions without listening to other people at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess those those are some of the criteria that are, that are really important. I mean, one thing is we think it's like very possible to go into the into the, into the trying to solve the problems that we're very concerned about and cause harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we're like <laughs> we've written we wrote this article last year about uh, you know various ways that you can accidentally cause cause harm in your career. Hmm. Uh, and I think uh, yeah, people who are like have a very like run in and break things mentality actually like might well go in and make things worse here uh, in, in, in a lot of these areas. Yeah. They're, they're like very fragile problems to be to be dealing with. Yeah. But uh, that, that was that was kind of all, all of prelude uh, to, right. to, 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 to this discussion of uh, yeah. So so what about uh, approaches to, to improving the world, like just uh, you know inventing uh, new technologies in general? Uh, so in as much as humanity is like um, the main problems that we face come from the natural world, like super volcanoes or asteroids or you know natural diseases, uh, then improving technology, growing the economy, like all makes us like larger and more impos- imposing relative to those problems and puts us in a better position to mm-hmm. you know rebuild after an asteroid or deflect the asteroid or like control diseases. But um, in as much as if, if this kind of fourth uh, point uh, from, from Bostrom uh, that I was saying is correct, that uh, in fact most of the – actually, sorry, it was the third point uh, – that most of the risk to humanity uh, comes from the, ourselves, comes mm-hmm. from new technologies that we're going to invent or stupid mistakes that we're going to make, uh, then it becomes less clear that just empowering humanity at the broadest level is actually sensible because while you like – while you improve our ability to solve the problems that we're creating, you also potentially grow the problems as well. Because the whole mm. problem in the first place was that we're like running ahead of ourselves, like inventing things, changing the world in very dramatic ways uh, that are, you know, are running running the risk of destabilizing everything and, and ending it. So is that an argument for that? That sounds like it would be an argument against 
sort of broad interventions to increase technological or scientific progress. Mm. And it would be an argument for, like, individuals who want to have a positive impact um, going into scientific or technological research, but, like, specifically the research that would produce the, like, safety-promoting technologies instead of the safety-decreasing technologies. Is that right? Okay. Exactly, yeah. Um, You did a great episode a few months ago with Tyler Cowen, who wrote the book Stubborn Attachments, um, which was sort of Tyler's, it was Tyler's argument for long-termism, but the the main intervention that he promoted in his book to, like, promote long-term welfare was increasing economic growth as opposed to reducing global catastrophic risk. Did you feel like you, by the end of the episode, understood why uh, your prescription and Tyler's prescription for for maximizing long-term welfare was so different? Yeah, uh, somewhat. I mean, it, it is. It was very funny reading that book because I'm like, I agree with ninety uh, percent of this, and then I like, and then we, then we diverge pretty seriously in the <laughs> yeah. conclusion. I mean, one thing is that it's not clear that Tyler and I uh, really disagree all that much because really? he, he doesn't actually say that uh, economic growth is the best way, like that one person could uh, could take to to improve the long term future or, mm-hmm. or to prevent human extinction. Um, and in, in fact, I think he agrees with practically everything that we've said about uh, like th- that the risk of extinction is higher than people think and that there's useful stuff that could be done to, to reduce the risk of human extinction that, that people could work on in, in, in a targeted way. Yeah. Um, I, he, he explained in the interview that the reason he was uh, talking about economic growth so much was that he thought that many more people would be likely to take that advice, that it was like a lot easier to get people to go out oh. and imp- yeah, and to just like try to make more money or like be more innovative in, in their jobs, you know, invent new things. That's something that, like, potentially a very large fraction of the population uh, can do. Whereas the kind of uh, advice that eighty thousand hours is giving is something that, like, it's 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 hard for for most people to know exactly how to how hmm. to act on. Tough trade off, though, because as you sort of said a few minutes ago, people already have incentives to go out and be innovative and and make money. Yeah. Um, there's already like a lot of effort going towards doing that, whereas there isn't as much effort going towards. Uh, figuring out ways to reduce catastrophic risk. So Right, yeah. So that's that's kind of the arguments that, that I made backwards, uh well, yeah. back 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 to Tyler. Right. Is yeah. that, so so one can one one can argue even about whether like uh, speeding up economic growth is good or bad. It's right. not entirely obvious that it makes things safer rather than the rather than riskier. Although mm-hmm. I think Tyler does offer some like uh, pretty good considerations in favor of thinking that faster economic growth on balance like makes the makes the world more secure rather mm-hmm. than rather than riskier. Um but that's like that's an active debate that people have. But I think that the, the, my main argument against this is just that it's like an insanely poorly leveraged approach to to uh, reducing human extinction. I mean, if you, let's say that you were thinking, yes, we, I want to make sure that like human civilization persists for hundreds of years, so I'm gonna you know start a business and like try to make it bigger and just uh, grow GDP. It's true that like maybe that's like. Uh, more tractable for many more people can see opportunities to to, to grow GDP, uh, maybe then to like reduce the risk of war between the US and China. But mm-hmm. you're losing so much oomph in the fact that like this the the causal connection between growing GDP or growing the economy or even like inventing new technologies towards pre- preventing human extinction, I think is like very weak and it's it's, it's unclear even whether it's positive or negative. Mm-hmm. So, so that's like a um, yeah plus just the fact that you know. Uh, we spend $1 trillion already on, on R&D globally. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, about $60 trillion is paid out to, to people to do their jobs, to, you know, make, to, to engage in economically productive activities. So in a sense, this is like, it, it's like the very like background cause area is just growing, growing the economy. And it's like, so certainly you, you, it's very hard to say that it's neglected, like relative to other things, all, mm. all things considered, like especially in, in a market economy where people have so, such strong incentives to, to, to like make money and, and, in, and in the process, like do the, kind, do, do the things that just grow the economy in a very general sense. I mean, you could argue, like from the perspective of, say, a philanthropist or maybe a a policymaker or something, as opposed to an individual who's a participant in the economy, you could say an area that's neglected is figuring out 
how to increase technological growth, which then feeds into productivity, which is something that Tyler's written a lot about, that like our productivity is stagnating mm. and um, and there isn't really a field yet devoted to um, like why is scientific progress slowing down. I did an mm. episode a few months ago with Michael Webb mm. who wrote that paper on um, our ideas getting harder to find. Yeah. So you could, like if you weren't worried about global catastrophic risks, mm. you could make the case that uh, – that that is, like, figuring out why scientific progress is slowing down and, like, how to speed it up again is, mm. like, high impact and uh, neglected and um, and at least somewhat tractable or, like, plausibly tractable. Well, yeah. So if if you really thought that it was just, in, like, that global catastrophic risks uh, were impossible, uh, that civilization was just going to continue, then actually yeah. it's not clear to me why, why any of it really matters because we're going to, like, as long as we just keep growing, uh, you know, each year uh, – then we're just gonna. Then we're gonna get there eventually, and there's no particular reason why we have to grow super quickly. I suppose Wait, one thing is that the universe is expanding. Like uh, that's the, interestingly, that's the most important <laughs> argument. Is that like galaxies are receding from us? So the longer we wait, uh, or, the, or the slower we grow as, uh, as an economy, um, the, the less you know value there'll be uh, available to, to harvest it at, at the end of it. Wait, I'm um, surprised to hear but, that you don't think that the rate of growth matters. Like if growth makes people better off, then isn't more people being better off sooner better? I mean, I guess I think of us as like basically we're going to. So this is like uh, it's, it's very hard to like shift frame from thinking about like the flow of goodness in any given year, is, and that, that we're trying to like increase the flow so that like next year more value is generated than this year. Uh-huh. To thinking about it more as like an endowment that we have, we have uh, like eternity essentially, or we have like as long as we want in in this universe, as long as we don't destroy ourselves. Um, and like the limiting factor is kind of how much energy and matter can we harvest, uh, can, can we like reach in the galaxy, and then like use or in the in the entire universe, and then at some point, you know, whenever it's like whenever it's ideal uh, to convert that into to convert that into value at a later time mm-hmm. so as long as you're like continuing to like grow uh it's like not clear what well I mean, so yeah so the reason to go faster um then would be well we managed to like capture more of the universe before it like before it recedes from us uh, mm-hmm. outside of like yeah yeah the, yeah the accessible universe um but it's like less obvious to me that like the, the fact that we would like generate more value next year than this year is like is is, is really so key i guess yeah this is like Taking the long term, like the utilitarian, like consequentialist, like long term view, uh, right. very seriously. I suppose on like on other values where you're like concerned about like people alive now, in particular, uh, it's like it, there's more of a common sense view, like why why we want to speed uh, up improvement a lot. Right. Um, but this is like one thing where I I, I, I think that the global catastrophic risk crowd uh, deviates from uh, like potentially common sense or potentially yeah, uh, people who are like working in business mm-hmm. who are thinking yes we want to like grow the economy as quickly as possible so we can like generate more value uh, next year. Whereas I, th- I think we're thinking more as like uh, how in the like very long term can we get like the most value out of everything? And from that point of view, it's much more about stability than it is about growing really quickly. Right. Growing more quickly, but like with a greater risk of catastrophe is like a terrible trade-off uh, in this right. view because, you know, the, the universe is only receding at like a rate of one billionth per year. So uh, basically if you could like grow, if you could get there like a year sooner, then that would only be worth uh, like a one in a billion risk of like uh, of, of the whole thing ending. Right. So it's much more focused on stability than, than speed. Right, um, but yeah, I guess it, so. If you thought that just improving technology um, did like did stabilize things, and you know one can make arguments in that area, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, working on like science and technology policy to figure out how we can do innovation more quickly uh, could potentially be really valuable. Because I agree, not many people are thinking at that level. Of like Patrick Collison's uh, done a bunch of interviews lately. Yep. He wrote that article in the in the Atlantic that we can link to. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are surprisingly few people thinking at like the policy level how about you know how to make science research proceed much more quickly. Uh, but just personally, I'm not convinced that uh, doing just like increasing the total amount of like scientific research that we mm-hmm. do each year um, is um, 
necessarily like is even positive or certainly is like uh, among the more leveraged ways to improve things i'd be much more focused on like how do we improve societal like wisdom and prudence so that like when we have more advanced technologies we're more likely to use them well uh, and and not use them against one another or just in very stupid ways hey listeners it's uh, rob here recording a bit of an edition after the show as you might have been able to tell, I got got myself into a bit of a, a bit of a tangle there, explaining that that issue of the of the universe getting larger and uh, why it's not necessarily important to go faster. And we were running out of time in the studio because we had to get out by a particular time, which I mean I couldn't couldn't go back and clarify the issue then. Uh, so I wanted to add, to add some more detail here to uh, make what I'm saying a bit less mysterious. Uh, the model I'm referring to there is that um, in as much as we make the assumption that Julian wanted to make uh, temporarily, that uh, ex- exponential growth is just just going to continue as long as it possibly can. So a catastrophe just just isn't just, just isn't a possibility. Then we are eventually just going to expand exponentially to, to control the entire accessible universe. And, and that can happen surprisingly quickly. Um, in fact, a, a mere 2% growth rate in kind of the good that we generate each year, uh, if sustained for a mere kind of 200,000 years, which is, which is nothing really in the, in the scheme of uh, the life of the universe, that would get us a growth of a factor of 10 to the power of 1,720, which is a, a very large number. And indeed, it uh, looks to be kind of more value output than, uh, than there is matter in, in the entire accessible universe to, to support. Even once we've invented uh, everything that there is to invent, we've reached kind of technological maturity. And if 200,000 years isn't, isn't uh, long enough, then uh, just um, make the number a little bit larger, uh, 400,000 years, and, and then um, uh, surely at some point we're, we're going reach, reach to that, reach that stage. Now at that point, uh, there's kind of two ways that things might go. Uh, we could just plateau in the amount of good that we're generating and just stay there for billions of years or however long while we uh, gradually uh, run down the universe's endowment of matter and energy. Uh, alternatively, perhaps having kind of secured access to all of that material, uh, we could just wait around uh, and then use all of those resources more abruptly at some kind of ideal later time if there's some reason to delay. But, but either way, you can kind of see that it's pretty close to irrelevant how fast we get there. Because the, the total value that can be harvested at that point is going to be basically identical whether, whether we reach that plateau in 200,000 years uh, or 2 million years or, or even really uh, 20 million years. Um, except, of course, for, for the reason I pointed out. That's right. The universe is expanding. Uh, cosmological uh, expansion means that the accessible universe is, is shrinking by uh, roughly a billionth each year. I don't know the exact figure, but something like a billionth. Uh, so, so growth delayed uh, means kind of mass and energy uh, denied to uh, future generations. So on that basis, starting 2 million years later or having some 2 million uh, year delay would, would actually only uh, reduce the amount uh, of the universe that we can a- um, get access to eventually by about uh, 0.2%. So there just there just doesn't seem to be much of a much of a rush in kind of practical human terms, given given the low rate at which the, the universe is receding from us. I also I also failed to mention that of course the universe's kind of negative entropy is gradually being depleted. That, that is, its its ability to do useful work is, is gradually being depleted by things like uh, the burning of stars, uh, and this this would reduce our uh, kind of remaining ability to to perform computations. But but this process is also occurring uh, really really surprisingly slowly and uh, that certainly outweighed by other factors like safety and, and making sure that we we ultimately get to where we want to get. And at that point, it's kind of time to call in the uh, physicists and, and cosmologists because. Uh, well beyond what I as an economist can kind of usefully discuss uh, talking about the expansion of the universe and disappearing uh, neg entropy. But, but, but that's, that's the uh, situation in broad strokes. And of course, uh, I'll, I'll repeat what I said on the show that um, all of the non-total utilitarian reasons for, for going more quickly and caring about other issues like you know, a kind of a selfish preference that we have for a better life now or concern for the, for the well-being of our friends and, and, and immediate descendants and children, uh, that they all remain as strong as before. I just wanted to uh, point out that kind of the idea that improving the world faster – 
is justified on those kinds of utilitarian grounds, which seems like it like it should be a very intuitive idea, uh, is actually uh, surprisingly uh, probably probably mistaken when you when you really think through uh, how things would play out in the in the long term. All right, I'll leave that there and uh, go back to the back to the interview. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you is when we were talking about like who should follow eighty thousand hours advice and like how many what percentage of the world would we want following your advice versus doing other random stuff like exploration um do you worry at all about like people following 80,000 hours advice who otherwise would have pursued some kind of like eccentric passion that like could be the next you know the the like uh, 18th century textile mill of the 21st century (laughs) like do you worry about about like um getting rid of the of the like potential innovators yeah, so I suppose uh, in as much as I'm like very much within this frame of like advancing technology in general uh, doesn't help. I, I suppose I, I I wouldn't be so worried about that. Uh, but that is a somewhat counterintuitive view that I'm like uh, not not sure about. Actually, so we we suggest like ten priority paths, which are like the the the, the ten uh, career paths that we think are like most likely to to make a really big difference to improving the long term future. Uh, currently, but like one exception we have in kind of your whole process for deciding your career is mm-hmm. if there's something that you're like incredibly well positioned to do mm-hmm. that no one else is uh, able to do that seems like it would uh, you know have a really large impact, then uh, there's a pretty strong case for for just sticking with that rather than switching into into the paths that we've suggested. Uh, but we do like probably the, the first thing that we think people should do when they're planning their career is to try to figure out what problem they're trying to to solve and potentially to do that before they like uh, figure out uh, what what method they're going to use. Uh, or like think too much about like what what they're specifically passionate about, just because we think there's like a hundredfold, thousandfold, possibly even like greater variation in like how much bang for buck you get uh, trying to trying to focus on on solving different on different problems. So that is just kind of uh, making sure that you work on something that like has is enormous in scale that other people aren't working on, where you can make a difference. Uh, just seems like it's kind of one of the one of the prime considerations. Mm-hmm. Now, um, all of that said, I, people do sometimes worry that. Um, we, we like reduce people's creativity or exploration uh, mm. in, in in their careers. And I think if people actually uh, read us like very closely, uh, because we're so focused on people doing stuff that's neglected, because there'll be like you know low hanging fruit there that other people haven't taken. In a sense, we are extremely in favor of like innovation and, and exploration. But one way that just like creating a career guide in general. Uh, limits you is that we have to put something on the page suggestions that like apply to more than one person that like mm, can be like right. generalized somewhat which uh, can cause people to think oh it's it's like only these things these like very generic kind of stock positions uh, that, that are available uh, but very often like the best opportunity for you with any with any problem is going to be something that only you kind of know about uh, but mm. we, of course we can't put that down because we don't that's that's like specific to each individual right. so we can kind of think of that in in, in the uh, one-on-one career coaching but that's something that people should should watch out for is that right. no we're not saying that you should just go and uh, yeah enter some like position that's like extremely codified and, and well Understood. Often it will involve like finding something that's like very unique to you and yeah, your unique circumstance. Okay, well, we'll link to the uh, 80,000 Hours Career Guide and just ask people to, to just mentally insert those asterisks after all the advice that 80,000 Hours gives. Um, Rob, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you to nominate some uh, resource, whether it's a person or a book or an article, um, that has influenced your thinking in some way or, or that you have substantial disagreements with, but that you've sort of gotten value from engaging with. And it's a, a lot of possibilities there. Do you have anything that fits that? Uh... Uh, so a lot of your uh, readers will be familiar with uh, James C. Scott, who uh, wrote oh, what's what's the classic like anarchist book about oh, uh, seeing like a state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book about yeah how like uh, projects to improve uh, uh, the, the world are kind of modernist projects by governments where everything is standardized have have often failed and failed really catastrophically. I'm something of a like defender of, of high modernism of like <laughs> these these like very organized ways to improve the world. I think people underrate, for example, how much high modernism just like improved agriculture enormously and, and like made us like much richer. 
in many ways in, in, in the long term, even though like obviously the Soviet Union was very, and Stalin were very catastrophic uh, to begin with. Anyway, he's written another book, which was like maybe my favorite book of last year called Against the Grain. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deep history of the first states. So he, he goes back and looks at, uh, you know, how did the very first countries of just thousands of people kind of uh, form, uh, you know, in 5000 BC. And it's just a absolutely fascinating history uh, and like includes many like un, uh, unexpected things about, uh, about the nature of those like very first city states uh, to begin with. Excellent. Yeah, James Scott is is great, and uh, and I, at least one other guest and I on a different podcast um, have recommended seeing like a state as a book that really influenced our thinking. So it's nice to get a contrarian perspective on this contrarian book. Yeah, I, I can um, I can stick up some links uh, of some people like uh, writing reviews where they kind of critique critique oh, review. I think it's like surpri- surprisingly rare for people to just say no. Actually, I, I want to like defend high modernism against. Yeah, this it's really not. Um, it's not, uh, not a trendy, yeah. not fashionable, exactly. But, just, just um, one yeah. other really quick one is Destined for War by Graham Allison, which oh. is about um, trying to assess the probability of a war between the US and China in, in the 21st century and looking at kind of historical analogies to, to, to try to guess at that. I think it's oh, like an underrated book that, yeah, might, might be interesting to, uh, I'm hoping to interview some people on, on, on the 80,000 Hours podcast about, yeah, how do we like make China and the US get along and, and cooperate in future? Excellent. Um, well, Rob, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, it's been uh, so much fun. Hopefully we can talk again soon. I look forward to it. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.